Tonight, I'll ask you to just bow with me for a word of prayer as we offer our time to the Lord. Heavenly Father, we're grateful. We're thankful to be here tonight. We're grateful that we can open your word together. We can study together. We can be challenged together and challenged individually in our own hearts and our own lives about what your word tells us. Lord, help us to receive the message that you would have for us tonight with the same heart that you intended so that we might be like Christ. We praise you for it in Christ's name. Amen. All right, I'll ask you to take your Bibles with me and open them to the Old Testament minor prophet of Joel. Old Testament minor prophet of Joel. As we told you this morning, we are going to do a series over the next several weeks over the minor prophets. And I I pray that it will be profitable for all of us. And at the same time, I have to express the difficulty of bringing an entire book to us in one study. Um, as you know, I have a tough time getting past even a word sometimes, and there is so much that could be said through any of the minor prophets, and yet we're doing it this way just to give us an overview, really, in one sense of the prophets themselves and the message of the prophets in a general sense And so it is my personal prayer that each of us would just set out some time, maybe during the week, maybe on your own time, to really go back to each one of the prophets that you can look at and study them so that you might glean from them even the greater and deeper riches that we may not touch on through our own studies together. Because each one of them are great in and of themselves. We're not going to be covering them in order. We're going to be jumping all over the place. As you can tell, the minor prophets don't start with Joel. They start with Hosea, at least in our Bible, as they go through. But we're starting with Joel tonight um, simply because this is the one one of them that I chose. And uh, I have a little more opportunity to spend time studying than some of the other guys. And so I wanted to give them more time to be able to get ready for their times as they are going to teach. So tonight we're studying the prophet Joel, or we could say it Joel, or Yoel, the name means Jehovah is God. Jehovah is God. It is a a, a compound word really made up from two of the names of God, Jehovah and Elohim, and therefore you have his name Joel, or Yoel, which is how we pronounce Joel in our own Bible. And there's much debate, at least in theological circles, when as to whether Joel was a pre-exilic prophet or a post-exilic prophet. What do I mean by that? I mean, was he a prophet that prophesied prior to the exile of Israel or after the exile of Israel? And there's debate as to whether that took place. Most believe that Joel was a pre-exile prophet And that's why his book in the Bible comes where it does, after Hosea. It comes second in the order of the minor prophets in our Bibles, at least chronologically. And we call them minor prophets not because they are in some sense lesser by way of importance than any of the other prophets in the Bible. It's just simply because of the shortness and length of their message. That's why we know them as minor prophets to the nation of Israel. They weren't known as minor prophets. They were simply known as prophets. We call them minor simply because they're shorter than the longer prophets, the prophets of Daniel and Ezekiel and Jeremiah and Isaiah and those that are longer in length as we have them in our Bible. But I can assure you that Joel is major in his message. All of the prophets are major in their message as they prophesy to the nation of Israel. Now, I've entitled our message tonight with these words, Consider Yourself Warned. Consider Yourself Warned. This is what continually comes to my mind as I read through the prophet's message. As you read through Joel, you come away with this reality of we ought to be considering ourselves warned. In fact, I believe this is the primary purpose of any of the prophets of God, to warn, to bring a message of real warning before the people of God, and those warnings always had a goal. They didn't come and just speak words 
And then it had no desire, no reason why God had them go speak. There was a goal. So if you search the entire prophecy and you search all of the prophets that we have, you go from Isaiah to Jeremiah to Ezekiel, Daniel, all the way through all of the minor prophets, even into and all the way through the Gospels where we read Jesus Christ's words, the message of all of them is that of a warning, and the warning has a purpose. It has a purpose. The warning that we find in Joel's prophecy is the same warning that I hope that all of us will hear and receive tonight and with that same purpose. Now, for Israel, Joel is writing to the nation of Israel. And for Israel, it was a warning of reminder so that they might reflect upon their present temporal sinful situation and thereby for the purpose of calling them to repentance. That they might look at their own sin personally and look at their own sin corporately as a nation and thereby repent of their sins. Because if they would not, there's a much greater warning about the future. Both of these are contained in Joel. An immediate warning and an extended future warning with eternal consequences if they would not repent. When I think about that, I'm reminded of New Testament passages which carry that same overarching truth as we think about warning and consequences. For example, as we studied uh, some months ago, the book of Romans, and we were in Romans chapter 1 many, many, many months ago. But Romans chapter 1, we see a warning from God, warning all men, all of humanity, about the reality of knowing His revelation and for the need to respond to it rightly. It says in chapter 1, verse 20 to 23, for since the creation of the world... His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what, he ha or through what has been made so that they are without excuse. Talking about all of humanity. For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and of four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Right there in the first chapter of Romans, as Paul is writing to the believers in Rome, there is a warning. They're being reminded that all men are sinful. And so there's a warning about their current sinful situation that they have, and, and, and it has a double purpose. First and foremost, that warning is to highlight the very nature and character of God, the very invisible attributes of God that are clearly seen by what He has made. So they exalt God's righteousness. The warning exalts who God is and His very character and His right to judge but at the same time, he graciously calls humanity to repentance. Calls them to turn from their wickedness. We see the same thing in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 12. Paul, or the, the writer of Hebrews speaking to, to what I believe would be Christians. And in Hebrews 12, beginning in verse 5, he says, you, he says, well, I'll begin in verse 4. You have not resisted to the point of shedding blood and you're striving against sin. And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him, because those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons, for what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, or of which we all have become partakers, then you are an illegitimate child and not a son. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us. We respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good 
that we may share his holiness. So right there in Hebrews 12 is a type of warning. A warning and a reminder to us as Christians that we must fight against sin. That we must be in this constant battle against the flesh and a battle against sin. And, and this is the whole purpose of the book of Joel. The book of Joel is a warning. A warning purposed from God, Jehovah God, even included in the very name of the prophet himself, a reminder about why Israel is in this sad state of affairs that we find them in here in the history, in this time period, in their history as they are uh, attempting, if you will, if we could put it that way, to walk with God. They are being warned about their present sin and they are being warned about the future day of the Lord when all unrepentant humanity, all rejectors of God himself, will face a final and eternal punishment before a holy God. And all of it is to expose the sin of idolatry and to call men everywhere to repentance. So this is the message. Now, for our purpose tonight, and for really our time's sake, I want to just touch on the reminders to Israel through Joel, both present, the present reminder and the future reminder, and then talk about the most important doctrine of personal repentance. So the present reminder, the future reminder, and then the doctrine of repentance. So the first warning is this. First you have warning, then you're going to have repentance. So without repentance, no one will be able to stand before a holy God. So let's look at this first warning. It is their present day warning. It is what is happening in the history of Israel in the time that Joel is speaking. And I call this reality check number one. And I'm going to do quite a bit of reading simply because I want us to hear the words of the prophet tonight, uh, but we'll talk about things as we go along. Joel says in chapter 1, the word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel, hear this, O elders, and listen, all inhabitants of the land. Has anything like this happened in your days or in your father's days? Tell your sons about it, and let your sons tell their sons and their sons the next generation. What? What the gnawing locust has left, the swarming locust has eaten. And what the swarming locust has left, the creeping locust has eaten. And what the creeping locust has left, the stripping locust has eaten. So awake, drunkards, and weep, and wail, all you wine drinkers, on account of the sweet wine. This is cut off from your mouth. For a nation has invaded my land, mighty and without number. Its teeth are the teeth of a lion, and it has the fangs of a lioness. It has made my vine a waste, and my fig tree splinters. It has stripped them bare and cast them away. Their branches have become white. Wail like a virgin girded with sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. The grain offering and the libation are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn the ministers of the Lord. The field is ruined, the land mourns, for the grain is ruined. The new wine dries up, fresh oil fails. So be ashamed, O farmers, wail, O vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field is destroyed. The vine dries up and the fig tree fails, the pomegranate, the palm also, and the apple tree. All the trees of the field dry up. Indeed, rejoicing dries up from the sons of men. Gird yourselves with sackcloth, O lam and lament, O priests. Wail, O ministers of the altar. Come, spend the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God, for the grain offering and the libation are we withheld from the house of your God. We can stop right there. This is reality check number one for Israel. Disaster has struck. Disaster has come upon the nation and it came in the form of a locust plague. Came in the form of what we might consider a natural disaster. It was a locust plague. 
reading the history of that. And today in America, we where a locust invasion is very rare at its best, we can hardly even imagine the kind of destruction that came on Israel in those days and in those months. If you've never read through the history of Israel, then you may not know what happened during that time. But if you read world history, if you read about similar disasters like this that happen in the world, because they do happen, I was reading recently about one that struck the land of Israel less than a hundred years ago. And the story gave a whole lot of detail concerning the destruction that took place on the vegetation and on the water systems when locust plagues happen. Much like Joel's description here in these first verses where they were the gnawing locusts, what they left, the swarming locusts ate, and what the swarming locusts left, the creeping locusts ate, and what the creeping locusts left, the stripping locusts ate. It was devastation. But what truly amazed me about reading about that history some less than some hundred years ago, it said that there were so many locusts that when they moved, the sun was obscured from view. I want to think about that for a moment. Can you imagine millions upon millions upon millions of grasshopper-like creatures moving across the land in such a, a force, such a vast piece of land, literally eating and destroying everything in their path? Wave upon wave upon wave upon wave, moving in such huge numbers as they move from one place to another place, from one crop to another crop, because they're so thick, the sun is obscured from view. I think once in my lifetime, I've had the privilege to be, uh, to see, I know the other ones have been, happened in our day and age, the solar eclipse of the sun. It was a hot summer day and the sun was eclipsed and it got immediately cold. This is what happens. This is what happens, like a solar eclipse. This is precisely what Joel and the people of that day were experiencing. There was an invasion in the land in plague-like proportions in, by the hand of God that were locusts. And the devastation and the suffering that took place was both personal and national. This is why Joel goes into detail in these first 13 verses and talks to the priest and talks to the, the wine, the, those who are vine dressers and those who are harvesters because all that they needed for worship, all that they needed for coming before the Lord and carrying out the feast and carrying out worship to God was destroyed. Because of their sin, they could not even come and worship the Lord as God had called them to. Affected them socially. No one was left out of the problem. No one was left untouched. Affected them economically. Every food source was depleted. There was none that was left. Not even the livestock could find something to eat. Notice verse 18 of chapter 1. How the beasts groan. The herds of cattle wander aimlessly because there is no pasture for them. Even the flocks of sheep suffer. Now, I'm sure those of you who've had sheep know that sheep will eat down to the, even the nubs of anything that's left. There wasn't even a nub left. The sheep couldn't even find anything to eat. This was a national catastrophic disaster. But like I said, most Importantly, the disaster struck them not simply socially and economically, but most importantly, it struck them spiritually. They were an agrarian society. All of their means of bringing offerings to God for sin, all of their means of bringing anything before God in worship, any thanksgiving in worship, anything like that was destroyed. In fact, Joel describes it in very graphic and explicit terms 
by saying, notice in verse 16 of chapter 1, he has not food been cut off before our eyes, gladness and joy from the house of our God. The seeds shrivel under their clods. The storehouses are desolate. The barns are torn down for the grain is dried up. How the beasts groan, the herds of cattle wander aimlessly because there is no pasture for them. Even the flocks of sheep suffer. And to thee, O Lord, I cry, for fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness and the flame has burned up all the trees of the field. Even the beasts of the field pant for you, for the water brooks are dried up and fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness. It's pretty graphic. That's a pretty graphic and stark reality as to their own sin and to what it has done. And he goes on to describe just how this has been done by the locust. He continues in chapter 2. Notice the second part of verse 3. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but but a desolate wilderness behind them. In other words, it's flourishing, it's perfect, it's filled with all kinds of vegetation, and then once they go through, there's nothing left. Nothing at all escapes them, verse 3. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses and like war horses, so they run. With a noise as of chariots, they leap on the tops of the mountains like the crackling of a flame and fire consuming the stubble, like a mighty people arranged for battle. Before them, the people are in anguish. All faces turn pale. They run like mighty men. They climb the wall like soldiers and they march in a line. They do not deviate from their paths. They do not crowd each other. They march everyone in his path. When they burst through the defenses, they do not break ranks. They rush on the city. They run on the wall. They climb into the houses. They enter through the windows like a thief. Before them, the earth quakes. Heavens tremble, the sun and the moon grow dark, the stars lose their brightness. And the Lord utters his voice before his army. Surely his camp is very great, for strong is he who carries out his word. The day of the Lord is indeed great and very awesome. You see, Joel is equating this very plague, this very reality with with where it comes from. This is the hand of God. And this was maximum devastation and maximum suffering. And it was all because, as we will see, the sin of idolatry. The sin of idolatry. This entire plague was a consequence of sin. You say, well, pastor, how do you know that specifically? How do you know it was a consequence of sin? Because God, through Joel, calls them to repentance in chapter 2. And he promises them restoration if they would repent. Notice chapter 2, verse 25. He says, Then I will make up to you for the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the creeping locust, the stripping locust, and the gnawing locust, my army which I sent among you. You shall have plenty and eat and be satisfied and praise the name of your Lord God who has dealt wondrously with you then my people will never be put to shame. Thus you will know that I am in the midst of Israel and I am the Lord your God and there is no other and my people will never be put to shame. God says, I brought this on you. I brought this about. I have been chastening you. I have been bringing consequences to your life. I have been disciplining you. This is the consequences of your own sin. But you know what's even more remarkable than the disaster itself? It's how Joel deals with it. How Joel deals with it. To begin with, he doesn't deal with it in a cavalier way. Sometimes we as Christians do that with our own sin. Sin happens in our life. We're idolatrous in some kind of way. We sin. Sometimes in much the same way as Israel sins here, we replace God as the rightful ruler in our lives. This is really the idolatry of Israel in this very text. And at this time, they replaced God with their own rulership. 
We do that sometimes. We pursue other things and emotions that are really become our God rather than God ruling us, and we commit idolatry like them. And oftentimes we're not shocked at all. It doesn't shock us when it's revealed to us. In fact, we were talking about this this morning a little bit, even in our Sunday school class. We, we, we try to describe our sins with words that minimize it. Describe our sins with words that excuse it or that blame shift it to something else and lessen the weight of it in our own eyes. But Joel doesn't do that with Israel. Joel sees it for what it is. Joel sees their sin as the consequences of sin that are. The consequences are, get this, a gracious warning from God to Israel personally. Ever think of the consequences of your sin that way? The, that you sin and God allows consequences, and even in those consequences, it's a mitigated uh, consequence. It isn't as bad as it could be if God just lets you be, according to your sin, to the, to the depth of your own sin, and even the consequence is a gracious warning from God. Even the consequence itself. Joel calls evil evil. He doesn't look at it with an attitude that sometimes just simply says, well, things happen. You know, they could have looked at this plague and just said, man, what happened? Uh, this must be due to climate change. Some, some natural thing happening, some natural reality coming on. This wasn't God at all. They could have said, it just things happen. But Joel doesn't do that. He accepts even personally the full reality of the disaster upon them, and he heeds the warning personally, and then he takes it to the street, if you will. He takes it out, calling on a different sectors of society to change their ways. Notice what he says in verse 2 of chapter 1. Hear this, O elders. That's the leaders. That's the leaders of the community, the leaders of the society, the leaders of the nation of Israel. Hear this, O leaders. Look at this is what's happening. Listen, all inhabitants of the land. Look, at, don't ignore this. Don't just simply turn your back and say, well, things happen. You need to pay attention. This is what's happening to us because God is doing this. And of course, we read the first 13 verses. He goes through the litany of what took place. The litany of how all things have been destroyed. Look, take heed to the warning. That's what he's saying. Look, you leaders, take heed. This is because of us. It's not simply just something happening. This is the point that Joel is trying to get across. This is what he's trying to say to the people. Wake up. Wake up and realize, recognize your sin. Recognize your sin. Won't you be warned? That's what he's saying. Won't you be warned? This is what's taking place. In a way, it reminds us of Jesus' words when he was weeping over Jerusalem in Matthew 23, verse 37. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who killed the prophets, Stone those who are sent to you. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were unwilling. Warning after warning after warning after warning. A call to repentance, a gracious act of God to uncover and show sin and yet you were unwilling. Thought about that. Isn't it sad? God oftentimes has to allow disaster to come about in order to wake us up to our sinful stupor. In America, we haven't seen many disasters like this. Oftentimes, ours are isolated to regions of our country. We hear of earthquakes. We see on the news floods in the Midwest, fires out west, hurricanes down south. Oh, sure, there's bombings from time to time in certain big cities. But most of the time, nothing of national catastrophe 
if we're honest with ourselves, we say, if we're not directly involved in one of those kind of things, whew, you say, whew, I'm glad I don't live in that place. How many of you are thankful that the South right now is getting the snow and we're not? Right? That happens to us. And yet right now we're in a national catastrophe, are we not? In fact, in many ways, it's a global catastrophe. And I think in many ways, it's a hand of God. This whole corona thing is the hand of God upon the sinfulness of our world. I think in many ways, because of our disregard for the for the sanctity of life, the disregard for the sanctity of the family, the disregard for the sanctity and authority of the Word of God. We have thrown that aside as not only a nation, but as a world. God has said, have it your way. Watch this. Watch this. We're not to take such things lightly. We're not to say, well, things happen. Things happen. The answer to that is no, they don't. The wise see it for what it is. The wise see these kinds of things as having come from God. And the wise will take the clarion call for repentance both personally and corporately. This is exactly what God offers to Israel. But we've seen re reality check number one. Let's look at God's offer for restoration. The reality check was filled with warning. It was the local reality check meant to drive the people to their knees, meant to drive the people to cry out for God, to God for repentance, to cry to Him to restore them so that they might be changed. But it wasn't only that. Right? It was a warning of what the eternal future would hold if they refused to repent. Acts chapter 3 tells us that there is a day coming. There is a day coming, what is referred to by Joel and in other places in scriptures as the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is coming. In fact, all through Joel, it's mentioned, we see it even in chapter 1 and verse 15, the first time we see it. He says, alas, for the day, for the day of the Lord is near." And it will come as destruction from the Almighty. Chapter 2, verse 1, For the day of the Lord is coming, surely it is near. Verse 11, And the Lord utters His voice before His army, surely His camp is very great, for strong is He who carries out His word. The day of the Lord is indeed great and very awesome. That word is Yahar. It is, it is, it is to be feared. It's great, and it is to be feared. Chapter 2, verse 31. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Chapter 3, verse 1. Behold, in those days and at that time. He's speaking of the day of the Lord because he just he introduces it here in verse 31. And then he says, Behold, in those days and at that time when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem. The day of the Lord he's speaking about. Verse 14 in chapter 3, multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. Verse 18, and it will come about in that day, speaking of the day of the Lord. Literally means the day of Jehovah. The day of Jehovah. The first time we see it is in the first chapter. Chapter 1, verse 15. It's referring to a future period of time when there will be a catastrophic judgment upon the earth and all of those who have refused to repent of their sin, those who have foolishly and unwisely turned their backs on God and worshiped gods of their own making will come to the valley of judgment. What valley is that? The valley of decision that we read about in chapter 3. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, chapter 3, verse 14, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. 
This is Joel's reality check number two. Reality check number one is here's what's happening locally. Here's what's happening, this catastrophic disaster upon our agrarian society in which we have no ability to feed ourselves, no ability to feed our animal and livestock, which means we have no ability to go and offer to God what God requires of us. We cannot even go to church. Sounds somewhat familiar, doesn't it? So this is reality check number two. Be warned because future judgment is eternal. Reality check number one. Be warned because this is a judgment of God and it's calling us to repent. It's a gracious reality of the consequences of our sin so that we might repent. But be warned, reality check number two. Future judgment is not temporal. Future judgment is eternal. And the bridge between the present destruction and the one to come The bridge between warning one really points to warning number two. Warning one points to warning number two, but the way of escape is a restored relationship with the one true God. And that starts with genuine repentance. Notice that Joel ends verse 11 of chapter 2 with these sobering words. The day of the Lord is indeed great. And very awesome, who can endure it? It's a rhetorical question. It's often a literary skill of the prophets. They would ask a rhetorical question. Jesus did this often. And the rhetorical question and the rhetorical answer is that no one, the only answer to the question is that no one can endure it. This is a a day in which judgment is coming from the Almighty. Who could ever, in and of themselves, endure it? But amazingly, amazingly, God, by His grace, continues to speak through Joel, and He gives, verse 12 through 29 of chapter 2. Notice what He says. Yet even now, declares the Lord... Right? You have the temporal destruction. You have the reality of the day of the Lord coming. No one can endure it. So watch yourselves. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart and with fasting and weeping and mourning and rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and relenting from evil. Stop right there. Wonder of all wonders. Joy of all joys. Grace of all grace. Grace upon grace. When they least, if ever, deserve it, what does God offer? When they least deserve any kind of graciousness from God, yet here is God offering grace. Amazing to us, isn't it? God, we don't deserve it, and yet he offers grace. Isn't this what Paul said in Romans, Romans chapter 2? And do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment upon those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance. All man has rebelled against God. We have turned our back from God. We we do not want God. We are idolatrous in our hearts. And yet here is God by his grace offering, offering to bring us back, to restore This is the whole purpose of Joel's writing. This is the whole purpose of the temporal warning and the whole purpose of the eternal warning is to bring people to repentance. We should not be surprised that God in the Old Testament would be the same God who is in the New Testament. We should not be surprised to see Joel's emphasis placed on the heart of man, just like Jesus Christ did in the New Testament. It is from the heart that the mouth speaks. 
Jesus in Matthew chapter 12, verse 34, speaking with the Pharisees, he said, you brood of vipers, how can you speak, being evil, speak what is good? How can you, who, who carry yourself in this idolatrous way, in this way of not worshiping the God you say you worship, you're evil, how can you speak what is good for the mouth speaks? Out of that which fills the heart. From the heart that flows the wellsprings of life, Proverbs says. Proverbs 4, verse 23 says, Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. And so here, through the prophet, of Joel, prophet Joel, God says through Joel, rend your heart and not your garments. Verse 13. Rend your hearts, not your garments. Rend is the, is the Hebrew word kara. Kara, if you want to spell that out, kind of in transliterate, K-A-W-R-A-H, Kara, and it means to revile, to revile, to revile. It's easy for us to do the second part of verse 13, right? To rend our garments. It's easy for us to do that. God is saying, but don't do that. Hate your sin. Hate your sin. Don't do the outward. Hate the ugliness on the inside. It's easy for us to do some kind of outward reformation, some kind of outward reform, and yet never have real heart change. God wants us heartbroken over our sin. He says, rend your heart. Rend your heart. I guess we ought to ask ourselves the question, do we get heartbroken over sin? Do we get heartbroken over sin? I have to admit in my own life, I've realized that my heart oftentimes is not broken over sin. Not saddened. Saddened, but not broken. In your own life, is your heart broken over sin? If not, is it any wonder we're plagued at times with sinful patterns we just can't break? We're not heartbroken. We don't rend our hearts over sin. Why? Well, maybe simply because it's that we've been trying to fix it from the outside. Maybe it's simply because we've been trying to, to get over the problem, over the difficulty of our sin, simply of the outside with personal reforms, rather than on the inside with a passionate, heartbroken repentance. See, we've, we've reviled the outer, but we've never been truly heartbroken. only that kind of repentance that will actually turn us from our sin. only that kind of repentance that will actually turn us whereby the doors are open of restoration to our holy God. You can't have a return to the Lord your God without first a rending of the heart. You cannot return to God. We cannot move back to the point of departure. That's the idea of return in verse 12. To, shoo, to, to, to go back to the point where you departed. You cannot return to that place. It's like Paul saying, or Jesus saying to the church in Ephesus, you've forgotten your first love. We cannot get to that place where we're back at the first love place until we rend our heart. There is no return without that. That's the kind of repentance that God wanted to see among his people. This is why God sent Joel. This is why God sent this prophet. And when true heartbroken repentance does take place, and notice what our text tells us. He tells us that there is full and lasting restoration. Notice verses 18 through 32 of chapter 2. 
Then the Lord will be zealous for his land and will have pity on his people. And the Lord will answer and say to his people, Behold, I am going to send you grain, new wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied in full with them. This is what you needed, right? You needed to have these. This is the only thing that will satisfy you. You need all of them. So he says, I will, you will be satisfied. And I will never again make a reproach among you, an approach, a reproach among the nations. I will remove the northern army from you. He's not talking about a physical army of people. He's talking about this plague. I will remove that from you. I will drive it into a parched and desolate land and its vanguard into the eastern sea and its rear guard into the western sea and its stench will rise and its foul smell will come up for it has done great things. And God's going to send all the locusts into the sea. They're going to all drown and die by his hand and they will smell bad. He says, verse 21, do not fear, O land, rejoice, be glad, for the Lord has done great things. Do not fear, beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness have turned green. For the tree has borne its fruit, the fig tree and the vine yielded in full. So rejoice, O sons of Zion, and be glad in the Lord your God, for he has given you the early rain for your vindication. He has poured down for you the rain, the early and latter rain as before, and the threshing floors will be full of grain, and the vats will overflow with new wine and oil. And then I will make up to you for the years that the swarming locusts have eaten, the creeping locusts, the stripping locusts, and the gnawing locusts for my army which I sent among you. And you shall have plenty. You'll ask for plenty to eat. You'll be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. And then my people will never be put to shame. And thus you will know that I am in the midst of Israel and I am the Lord your God and there is no other. And my people will never be put to shame. God says, you repent of your sin and I will pour upon you blessings upon blessings that you could never imagine and you will be restored unto me and you will be fully satisfied. You will be fully satisfied. So not only will God take care of the physical reality and all that you need for worship, but also notice verse 28, and, I will, and it will come about after this that I will pour out my spirit on all mankind. And your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. And even the male and female servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. And I will display wonders in the sky and on the earth, blood, fire, and columns of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness, the moon into blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it will come about that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be delivered or on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there will be those who escape, as the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. We've heard that before, haven't we? It's a calling. It's a calling. What should we expect if repentance like this were to take place in our lives personally? What would we expect? What should we expect if repentance was to take place in our own evangelical lives in a corporate sense or even nationally? Our country is not a godly nation as much as we'd like to hope so. I'll quickly realize, let me list three realities that should take place. We've seen reality check number one, the events of their Day. We've seen reality check number two, what happens with the consequences of the future. We've seen the importance of repentance. What would happen if this kind of repentance would take place? Well, reality number one would be this. There would be open confession of sin. There would be open confession of sin. Notice chapter 2, verse 15 to 17. 
It says, blow a trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, proclaim a solemn assembly, and gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children and the nursing infants, let the bridegroom come out of his room and the bride out of her bridal chamber. Let the priests, the Lord's ministers, weep between the porch and the altar, and let them say, spare your people, O Lord, and do not make your inheritance a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they be why should they among the people say, where is their God? This is an open confession of sin. An open confession of idolatry until we confess our sins specifically, until we confess our sins before God in all of their ugliness, we are really not repenting. Charles Spurgeon told a story once of a woman who went to her pastor and he knew that she'd been caught in a great sin, but he was trying to help her see it for herself and see if her confession was in fact genuine. So he began to say to her, quote, well, if you're a sinner, of course, you have broken God's laws. Let us read through the Ten Commandments and see which ones you have broken. He began to read. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Did you ever break that? Oh, no, sir. No, not that one. Not that I know of. should have no other idols. No idols. No other gods before me. Did you ever break that? No. You should not take the Lord's name in vain. Did you ever break that? No, not that I know of. You should not profane the Sabbath. Did you ever... Do that? No, not that I know of. He went through all ten. The answer was the same. No, not that I know of. What was her problem? She never saw herself as a sinner. She said she repented, but her repentance was only an outward act of her own pious religion. It was only an outward act to acknowledge that she was a bad person, but there was never a true heartbrokenness over her sin. With true heartbroken repentance, we should expect first confession of sin, ownership of sin, true and specific ownership of our sin. Sometimes we go to God in prayer and say, God, forgive me of my sins, and we give this general category. Listen, beloved, we need to be specific. Forgive me of and name the sin specifically. Lay your heart open before the Lord. Truly repent. Rend your heart. In reality number two, we can expect genuine contrition. Not only can we expect genuine confession, but genuine contrition. This is what Joel and God was saying, even in Verse 12 of chapter 2, Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, weeping, and mourning. This is genuine contrition, genuine sorrow for sin. Genuine sorrow for sin. The Bible tells us in Psalm 51, verse 17, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You will not despise. That's what David said. Sacrifices to God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. Often we regret our sin, but it's different than simple regret. Contrition is not regret. We may regret something we've done in life, but never be broken over it. Judas was like that. Here's how one commentator asked it. He asked it this way, quote, Do we know what it means to be contrite? God desires that sinners sense their guilt and weep within for what their sins have done to defile self, to destroy neighbor, dishonor Christ. It's only when we experience poverty of spirit are we on the right road to everlasting enrichment from the treasury of divine grace. When we mourn over our sins, we pass through the spiritual winter, and then comes the springtime of God's comfort. Unquote. That's right. 
What should we expect? We should expect specific confession. We should expect genuine contrition. And then lastly, we should expect lasting change. Lasting change. All right, verses 12 and 13. Return to me with all your heart. Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, relenting of evil. Relenting of evil. Changes what the word return means there. Carries the idea of convert or or turn again. Go back to the starting place, as I said. The point there is that there is a right relationship with God. We had a right relationship when we were in Adam in the garden prior to the fall, but we've all turned away from God. Now we need to return. This is the idea that Joel is saying to the people of Israel. You need to return. You turned away from God. I was reading one time in a Sunday school class of a little boy who said repentance was being sorry for what? For your sin. Being sorry for your sin, a little girl said, it's being sorry enough to quit. Being sorry enough to quit. That's right. That's right. It's simplistic, but it's right. So repentance is, right? It's an about face. It's a turn. It's a change of the mind, which means makes a change in behavior. And so without change, there is no true repentance. So this is the message of Joel. This is the reality of Joel's prophecy to Israel. Their idolatry was great. God, because of their idolatry, sent this physical plague upon the earth. And the consequences of their sin were a gracious warning to them by a holy God that they should turn from their wicked ways. And that's what sin does. It always leads you downhill and away from God. That's what sin does. But if we will repent and return to God, God has said he will draw near to us he's gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness. And if we refuse, if we refuse to repent in the day of temporal judgment, then we need to be warned because there is a permanent judgment coming. There is a day of valley of decision day in the future when Jesus Christ will return and judge the entire earth, the sun and the moon will grow dark, as Joel says in chapter 3, verse 15, the stars will lose their brightness, and the Lord will roar from Zion as judge. His judgment on that day will be a permanent judgment. It'll be a permanent judgment. Verse 18 of chapter 3, we'll just close with this. It will come about in that day that the mountains will drip with sweet wine, God will restore Israel to its glory because the Lord will be reigning there. The Lord God will be dwelling in Zion, as it says in verse 17. The hills will flow with milk. The brooks of Judah will flow with water. The springs will go out from the house of the Lord, the valley to water the valley of Shittim. And Egypt will become a waste. Edom will become a desolate wilderness. Why? Because of the violence done to the sons of Judah. Where? In whose land there was innocent blood, they shed innocent blood. But Judah will be inhabited forever. And Jerusalem for all generations. God says, I will avenge their blood, which I have not avenged. For the Lord dwells in Zion. Israel has a place in the heart of God. Just like each and every believer, one day Jesus Christ will come back and he will reign from Jerusalem. Israel will be restored. And God will begin to draw his people to himself during that time. So we've been warned. 
We've been warned. Reality check one, reality check two, and restoration only comes through repentance. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for Joel. We thank you for his message. We thank you for the timeliness of it even in our day utter sinfulness of the nation in which we live, a nation raised up by you, a nation commanded by you to honor you, and yet who has foolishly turned its back, a nation now that even wants to silence even those who proclaim the truth. Lord, we don't want to be part of the, part of those who have turned our back, Help us see our sin for what it is. Help us to confess it with specificness, with contriteness, so that we would know your restoration. Lord, we pray for our nation. We pray for the world. We pray that you would break the back of the false teachers, false prophets, those who lie that the truth might prevail. We pray that you would mitigate the damage. We ask that you would do whatever you need to in order to bring about repentance. But Lord, we pray that you would cause us to endure even in the suffering. May we continue to be able to speak loudly and clearly the truth that others might know of Jesus Christ. Help us to be gracious like you are, compassionate like you are and yet uncompromising like you are, simply because we are your children. We thank you for this message. Use it in our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.